This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you, everybody, for joining us again. One of the most famous Bible verses when it comes to parenting has to be Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. But when we think about the proper training of our children, how many of us moms in particular think about our Christian duty to train them in apologetics? In fact, teaching apologetics to our kids is one of the most important things that we can do for them, especially at a time when so many young people are leaving the church and so few are maintaining a biblical worldview. What can a mom do about it? We're going to find out today from Hillary Morgan Ferrer. She's founder of Mama Bear Apologetics and author of the book we're going to be talking about, also called Mama Bear Apologetics. Hillary, great to have you with us today. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. It's great to have you here. So tell us a little bit about Mama Bear Apologetics and what it means to be both a mama bear and an apologist at the same time. (laughs) Uh, so the, the phrase Mama Bear Apologetics came to me several years ago, and it was honestly one of those things where you get a word stuck in your head and you can't quite get it out. Um, there's a church called Crossroads Bible Church and there was a that I went to as a kid, and there was a woman who was giving her testimony about uh, what happened with her kids. Her name was Jody Weiss. We have a podcast on her on the, on the podcast, and she is mentioned in the beginning, uh, I think the introduction of the book. But she was talking about how she had taken her children to Awanas, that they had uh, rededicated their life when they got to college. And she was just horrified to find out when uh, her youngest son walked away from the faith after having an atheist boss basically tell him that Jesus was basically the same thing as Santa Claus. <sighs> and she was just asking that question. She was desperate. What could I have done differently? And I watched her through this uh, several week series that my husband and I were at the church kind of helping out with an apologetic series. I listened to her and watched her as she just studied, 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 and things that she would never have studied before, but it was for the sake of her child. And I remember watching that and thinking, that's something, that, that, that needs a name, what is that? And I thought, that's like a mama bear instinct, this cute and cuddly and sweet, and in her case, you know, fitness instructor, you know, not, not necessarily uh, going out and, you know, doing philosophy and theology, but... When her child was threatened, she got up and did what she would never do for herself, and she learned all those things so that she could have the tough conversations with him. And I thought that is what this world needs, is we need a world of mama bears who see that their children are in danger of the ideologies that are being spread throughout culture and who stand up and say, oh, no, no, not my kid. Yep. And they are going to go and teach themselves apologetics so that they can have these difficult conversations. It's totally true. I, I understand that instinct very well as a mom. And it, there's something about looking at how the world is having its effect on your own children, especially today when things are so dire, culturally speaking and morally speaking, that makes mm-hmm. you say, I better do something. I'm the mom. So when you're looking across the spectrum and you're seeing the effects of this culture on our kids, what are some of your greatest concerns specifically? I would say one of my greatest concerns would be their ability to know what truth is, that truth exists, and then it can be found. And if so, how do we find it? 
Yeah. And I would say that that is a strong theme throughout the entire Mama Bear book. We, we talk everywhere from uh, naturalism. Do, do we get all our truth from science? Is it not true unless it can be proven in a lab? And you would be surprised at how many people will not accept something as like, well, you know, true for everybody unless there's some peer-reviewed journal about it, you know, that <laughs> right. are on that topic. Right. Uh, you, you also see things like uh, postmodernism, which is really undermining their ability to even think that finding truth is possible. What, what you've probably heard, I, I mean, just ad nauseum at this point, is people have stopped talking about the truth. And what have they started talking about? My truth. My truth, yep. exactly. Yep. And so it's this idea that truth can be just based on what you think it is, and my truth is my truth, and no one can say anything about it. Well, okay, sure. Well, then how do we even get to that truth? And this is where we go into maybe the emotionalism chapter of if I feel it, it's true. And the stronger I feel it, the more true that it is. And if I want to convince you that something's true, then I need to make you feel as emotions as strong as mine. And then you'll see the truth, too. And, and this is something that has creeped into our churches. This isn't just even in... Um, this isn't just even in the culture. We see this happening in the church, where the church is trying to convince people of the truth of Jesus Christ by kind of manipulating people into an emotional experience. Yes. Even this, this concept of, if I look at when people, when their first thing to say is, I want to tell you my testimony. So yes. first off, that tells me, I mean, not that telling your testimony is a bad thing. I think we should all have a testimony and we should all tell it. But number one, it puts us as the, the main character right off the bat. Uh, number two, you're trying to show them a lot of times how this emotionally thing kind of worked for me. Mm. Uh, instead of you look at what testimonies were in the first century, and they were saying, let me tell you what I have seen and heard and what Christ did. Yes, yes. Well, uh, and it's it, this yeah. is a problem. I agree with you completely on what you're saying, because when you think about the average kid's experience growing up in church, and I can think of a lot of experiences that I even had when I was growing up, there are a lot of emotionally based tactics that are used that are well-meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, your youth pastor yeah. who says, let's have this game or this, this, you know, let's have some fun time here. And then you compliment it by sending kids off to camp and everything is fun. And then you have a really emotional time by the campfire. And, you know, sometimes there's a lot of pressure on kids. Well, have you been bad this week? Are you sinning? Are you doing, you know, and it, it's not apologetics based. I think that's what yeah. I'm trying to say. And even if it's well-meaning, there are a lot of people who I think have had that experience where it really is is very emotional. Even you think about some of the youth events, it's very music driven. And I love yep. music and I love hymns and I love, you know, praise and worship. That's awesome. But is that part of the problem, do you think, Hillary, that we are not as apologetics based as we ought to be, even in some of these church activities that we send our kids to? Absolutely. And, and I, I don't want to negate the power of really have really meeting Jesus face to face, because I mean, I, I would I think we're hard pressed to find anywhere in Scripture where someone met Jesus face-to-face and didn't have someone of an emotional experience. Yes. Because, I mean, that's the God of the universe that I've just met face-to-face. That's going to be an emotional experience. So we can't say that, okay, well, we just need to put all our emotions and lock them in a box, and that's bad. No, no, no. We have to recognize, though, that the Scripture says that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And uh, we, we talk about in the emotional emotionalism chapter that emotions are great, but they have to be uh, centered around something kind of like compasses. We say a compass, you have to magnetize a compass in order for it to point to true north. Right. 
And if you don't magnetize it, it'll point in any direction. It'll tell you it's north and it's not. Um, but our, our emotional compasses need to be, uh, I guess, magnetized by scripture, reality, and truth. Good. That's and excellent. If we, mm-hmm, And I think that's where apologetics comes in. It's, it's not saying, is it emotions or is it apologetics? No, it's saying uh, apologetics can be the thing that magnetizes your emotional compass to where you can actually trust your emotions in the first place. But if you can't trust your emotions... And all we're doing is pointing people towards emotion. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Right, right. Well, you know, you think, for example, the reaction of the disciples when they saw the risen Christ and they realized it was Jesus. The fact mm-hmm. of the resurrection really was what hit them. And then the emotional response came as a result of the truth. So in many yep. respects, it seems when we're dealing with our kids, that's really what the objective is. We give them truth that is so awesome that there will be an emotional reaction, but it's not just emotion. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I think it kind of is. I think in some ways we're trying to get the cart before the horse. We've actually seen these examples of someone coming face to face and having this uh, emotional experience with Christ, and we have mistaken the emotion as being the transforming process. So we think, okay, if we want this transformation to take place, let's focus on that emotion, because that's what's doing it. No, it's like we're missing what caused that emotion. And so I think we talk about it that emotions are great followers, but they're horrible leaders. (laughs) Uh, And so if we are focusing on the thing that's supposed to follow, thinking that we have now captures the essence of what of what that message is that we're trying to say. We've missed it. I, I see the exact same problem happening when people talk about uh, the fruit of the Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit is not supposed to be something that we conjure up in ourselves, and that's kind of what makes us better or worse Christians. It's more like following Christ, that the fruit is the response to following Christ, and we focus on the response instead of on being elicited the response. Very good. Well, we're going to pause for a very quick break. Hillary Morgan Ferrer is with us. Mama Bear Apologetics is her book. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today after this. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child, perhaps the dad's gone, perhaps her mother is pressuring her, most of the time in her heart she doesn't want to abort, but what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 
402 baby. That's 855 402 2229. Or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us Hillary Morgan Ferrer. She is author of Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. And you can check them out also at mamabearapologetics.com. This is such important information, Hillary, I think, especially for the moms who are listening and who really have the same heart that you do. I want to reach my kids with something deeper than maybe I've been doing in the past. What do you think are the primary biblical issues that moms need to be equipped to explain to their kids from the Bible? In other words, where do you start and what should you focus on when you begin to do apologetics with your kids? Mm. I think one of the primary things is learning how to see the good and the bad in everything. And I'm not saying I'm going to use them say the Bible is the exception of that. But even the Bible, you have to see what the intention is. Because like, if you read the Old Testament thinking this is all my this is all uh, uh, truths that I'm supposed to emulate. You're, you're going to probably go off in a weird direction. Um, the Old Testament even itself is kind of this evidence of, of blowing it over and over again. So you have to see things for what they are. So I think one of the things that happens with kids is that parents have a tendency to want to categorize everything as saying all safe and all dangerous. You know, this show is good. That show is bad. This show is Christian. That show is not Christian. This is a Christian band. That's not a Christian band. So this is how we categorize things in order to tell you how you can learn truth, because we do implicitly recognize that our kids are picking up on messages everywhere. So, you know, I think it's a good thing that we're trying to make sure that the places that they're picking up on messages are going to be things that are good and um, affirming things that are in Scripture. However, that being said, I think one of the things, and people a lot of times don't think of this necessarily as apologetics, and I think that's where our book is actually different than a lot of apologetics books, is we're trying to teach kids how to sift through everything in terms of, is this biblical or is this not biblical, and which part of the Bible is this? Is this something that's supposed to, is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? Yeah. Is it something that the Bible is showing us a bad example and we shouldn't emulate it, right. or the Bible showing us a good example? So even having those categories in our minds. And so I, I think that what happens is when we divide the world into safe and dangerous or Christian and non-Christian, uh, kids are still picking up that there's truth and lies in all of these things. And so if we tell them all of this is good, then they're eventually going to swallow some lie and something bad and think that that's okay because it was packaged in the all good category. And then on the opposite side, if we say this is all bad, you know, everybody, you know, for my, for my uh, generation, there was like certain shows we couldn't watch. My parents wouldn't let me watch. So you can't do that on television. I know a lot of um, parents that wouldn't let their kids listen to Madonna. It wouldn't really deal with me. I just, I listened to all Christian music anyway, but, um, 
when you get old enough to where you start sifting through, all of a sudden you start seeing, wow, the, there are some true things here that, that maybe the people that I was told are bad. There's some true things that they're pointing out that maybe they are pointing out ways that there's been oppression. Maybe they are pointing out ways that some people have been mistreated. If I've now categorized that as all bad, I'm going to go back and instead of saying, well, it's good to oppress people, I'm going to go back and say, my parents lied to me, my church lied to me, what else have they lied to me about? Right. And at that right. point, I have zero discernment on how to pick through and figure out what is the good and what is the true uh, aspects and everything. And so apologetics, uh, a lot of times, is a focus on the evidences, right? You know, you think of the classical apologetics, what are the evidences for God? What are the evidences for Jesus? Well, we got to go back a step, uh, a, a step back and say what constitutes evidence. Because right. this right now is up for grabs. The kids don't even know what constitutes evidence. And like we talked about in the previous segment, suddenly emotions are this really big thing that, oh, that's evidence for something. Hmm. No, <laughs> emotions are what they are. They're not really evidence. They're, they're evidence that something's going on, but it's not telling us which direction to go. So I think the apologetics is important in order to really, uh, we call it the chew and spit method in the book, which we go, <laughs> it sounds kind of gross, but we go into it a lot in um, in chapter three. And uh, just being able to kind of chew and spit through everything that we see in culture and be able to build that worldview that is good and pleasing to God, that is based on scripture, that picks up on messages no matter where they come from, if they're true, saying, yes, they're pointing out truth, and I, I know where in Scripture this, this matches up, and maybe out of the same side of that person's mouth, maybe the next sentence might be something false. Okay, I'm going to say that. That's not true because it doesn't align with Scripture. Yes, yes. But having that discernment, I think, is the number one skill we can give to our kids, and then we don't have to worry as much about what they're watching, what they're hearing, what they're hearing in the news and on TV shows. If they know how to chew and spit, how to pick through things, we are going to have a kid who sees how the good contributes to a good and flourishing society and how the things that Scripture is against maybe are not contributing to a good and flourishing society or are just going against the precepts of God. And yes. that right there, the world makes sense. We want a world that makes sense. To what, you know, what you're saying is really important, Hillary. I was thinking, I was kind of laughing a little bit when you were mentioning music because I have actually had occasions when I will be listening to Christian music in the car and some bad theology actually comes out of the singer's <laughs> mouth. And I turn to my kid and I listen to a lot of Christian music too, older stuff mainly, not, not the newer stuff. I'm too much of a dinosaur for a lot of the new stuff. But I'll go back and I'll, I'll hear one line and I'll say, now that's not true. True. That's actually not biblical. Uh -huh. Do you know why? And then yeah. my child hopefully will give the right answer. We've had some great discussions that way, but I, I also think that that's very important because you have to be discerning sometimes inside your church, just like you mm -hmm. have to be discerning of the world. And and to yeah. recognize truth from error is a skill that Bible you know the Bible clearly says we need to have. Something else that you talk about, you talk about all these different false worldviews that need to be addressed, and it's so important. A couple more that you mentioned really intrigue me, one of which is addressing the new spirituality. Can you speak yes. to how you address that? Sometimes we just call it paganism or, or what have you, but how do you do apologetics to train your kids to see this in culture and to reject it based on the Word of God? What sorts of tips do you have? Um, I think one of the biggest tips is actually found in Chapter 4 on linguistic theft is that we have a whole bunch of words that have basically been taken and they've been redefined. 
and then they've been put back on us as if, oh, well, this is what you believe as a Christian. See, I'm using all the same words. <laughs> and I would say the new spirituality is really good at doing that. They, they are good with, they, they really want to have love. They want to have unity. They, they want to have uh, intimacy. They want, there's a one, the key one that I'm missing out on here. Um, uh, well, we'll just go with those three right now, the, the love, unity. <clears throat> uh, and they're, they're presenting it in this light, in this goodness, and they've redefined what the gospel is. They've redefined who Jesus is. I mean, if you look at a lot of the new spirituality, they, they have something that's actually called Christ consciousness. Yes, where yes. Jesus was a man who recognized who he was before God, and once he came into this knowledge of his, you know, saneness with God, then he had all the powers that we see Jesus had. And so we're not worshiping Jesus as, um, you know, wanting to become like Jesus in the sense of we're man, he's God, we want to reflect him. It's more like he was a man who became God, and we are men who can become God. And that's how we're supposed to be following Jesus. And they'll use all the same language of we just follow Jesus, we just do what Jesus did. But they have so radically defined who Jesus is and what the gospel is. The gospel is coming out of this slumber of recognizing, you know, that you have the ability within yourself, Scott Hopper, to attain this level of spirituality that he did. And so all the same words are used, and it's really confusing, especially for people who are new believers. So I think that one of the number one things we can do for spiritual, for the new spirituality and for progressive Christianity is we need to go back and create a really good lexicon of what do all these words mean and yes. be able to identify when they have been linguistically accepted and yep. someone's taking them and changed the definition and then said, see, you're a Christian, you're supposed to believe this. And you're sitting there going, yes, I am. The Bible says I am supposed to believe that, but something doesn't feel right. Exactly. I can't quite identify it. Exactly. Oh, yeah. It's just as true with progressive Christianity as it is with uh, new spirituality or even Marxism. And there, mm-hmm. some of these people really are experts at picking up biblical language and twisting it. And that is, you know, such an important skill for every Christian to have, to be able to spot it, to spot the twisting and to be able to unravel it with the Bible. Mm-hmm. So what do you advise moms to do who are listening, who are saying, I really would like to begin to teach my child how to be discerning to have a biblical worldview and to really have that be a conviction, not so much appropriating these views because mommy said so, but because, you know, you're trusting that the Lord will work in your the heart and the life of your child. What should I do first if I'm a mom who wants to begin this process? Well, I think, um, well, first off, you know, shameless plug here, I think to really understand what's going on, to see the changes that have taken place, to see the worldviews that are at play you really first need to educate yourself on what those are. So, right. of course, <laughs> I'm going to say, I think your first step should be to get the Mama Bear Apologetics book. There you go. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, it's for the purposes of the, the feedback that I've gotten from so many women is that every, oh, well, I won't say everything, but a lot of the stuff in this book, they're saying, I saw this going on and I didn't have words for it. So I just want to encourage women to say, this isn't dumping a whole bunch of new information into your brain. This is picking up on stuff that you've probably already picked up on, and now it's going to give you the words. And once you have the words, like literally, it doesn't matter where you go, what cartoon you watch, what movie you watch, what craft fair you go to, 
you will have so many teaching opportunities around you that you just can't unsee anymore. You know, (laughs) the number of things that say follow your heart, the number of things that say you do you, (laughs) the number of advertisements that say you deserve blah, blah, blah. (sighs) And um, what was the one that I posted on my Instagram? It was this one that says it's all about you. And I'm like, is it though? Is it? Is it really all about us? Yep. There's all these silly questions that you can ask your kids and make it kind of a fun game to let, you know, let's spot the bad ideas out here in culture. And, you know, thank you, culture, for giving us so many opportunities. They're everywhere. So you don't have to go and read a million books. Just get familiar with the ideas and then just look around. Get going. Yeah, I love it. Mama Bear Apologetics, Hillary Morgan Ferrer. Thank you so much, Hillary, for being here. It was great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too. All right. God bless. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Remember when William J. Buckley Jr. famously said, I should sooner live in a society governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than in a society governed by the 2,000 faculty members of Harvard University? Well, if he were still alive today, there's no doubt that Buckley's opinion would remain the same. College campuses are not only overwhelmed and largely dictated by progressive political thought, but they've also become hotbeds for the suppression of ideas and free speech. What has this done to the entire endeavor of higher learning? And is there a solution to it? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. John Ellis, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of German Literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He founded the Association of Literary Scholars and Critics and served as president and now chairman of the board of the California Association of Scholars. And today we'll be talking about his book. It's called The Breakdown of Higher Education. Dr. Ellis, welcome. Great to have you. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, thank you. You know, a lot of us have been very appalled by a lot of the situations you've discussed in your book, these campus riots that we've seen, people like Charles Murray or Heather McDonald shouted down and attacked on college campuses. I'm curious how you view this situation in the broader context of the breakdown in higher education in general. Well, it's a very serious situation. I mean, parents and students are paying very large sums of money for higher education. And they're not getting it. Yeah. I mean, uh, higher education is something that always used to teach people to think for themselves, to look at problems, analyze them from different perspectives, understand them, break them down into different parts, and basically learn how to think productively in a, in a heightened way. That's yeah. what a higher education is for. That's not happening. In fact, the reverse is happening because now what you have is political radicals on campus who want students to stop thinking and, and just simply believe in their political ideology. So if a kid asks a question, a searching question about that political ideology in the classroom, he gets shut down. Yeah. Uh, because the, the political radicals who now uh, are in those classrooms running them don't want questions asked about socialism. They just want you to believe in it. So actually what's really happening is worse than kids not getting an education, 
It's worse than that. They're getting a miseducation. They're getting their thinking processes shut down. Yeah. That's true. It's a real scandal. It, yeah, it it's is. It's a terrible scandal. It is. You're absolutely right. And I thought it was very interesting that you said the censorship of ideas happens long before it becomes visible at events like these public lectures where these speakers are shouted down, which is why students have learned to shout these ideas down. So can you take us into the classroom a little bit and talk to people about what goes on in the classroom that kind of sets up the situation for the students to behave as they're behaving? Well, um, to back up a little bit, I mean, the, the, the prevailing standard of behavior for university professors always, be that, always used to be that they had to stay off politics in the classroom. Now, you know, there are, there are laws in California, for example, where I teach. The, the Constitution says the university must be kept free of, of politics hmm. and free of political influence. Now... In, when I was uh, just beginning teaching, people used to respect that. that you mustn't proselytize in classroom. You mustn't push your political ideas in the classroom. Now that's that's completely broken down. That consensus. Professors in the classroom are very free with their political ideas. So you even get people like, say, professor of mathematics. It's politics, nothing to do with mathematics. They will rant on for five minutes at a time. <laughs> about their, their their political ideas, no one stops them. Uh, you know, years ago, a dean, if he heard about this, a dean's job was to make sure that uh, no one was abusing the classroom. Right. Now, the deans hear about it, they look the other way. They know very well if they tried to stop it, they'd run into real trouble from the radical faculty uh, who would, um, you know, who would criticize them. Yes. So uh, it's very widespread. Um, the the campuses are now run by political ideologues. The majority are political ideologues. Kids can still find a good academic teacher if they look hard enough, uh, but it's getting increasingly rare. Each year it gets worse because older professors retire. Mm-hmm. and are replaced by radical. So the remaining good section uh, is getting smaller all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're currently up to something like uh, the left-right ratio on campus, something like 13 to 1 now. Goodness. Um, and it's getting bigger all the time. So, uh, And any time you get um, an overwhelming majority politically in one room, it gets more extreme. Sure. I mean, you know, if you put in in the in the same room, people all agree with each other. Uh, pretty soon, they'll they'll reinforce each other's opinions, and their opinions get more and more and more extreme because there's nothing to correct. There's no one on the other side to say, you know, you're getting a little uh, out there. Yes, uh, that doesn't happen. Uh-huh. So the the brand of left politics you hear in university classrooms is way to the left of what you hear in public. It's awful. And you're right. People are forking over big bucks to send their kids to college and, and they expect they're at least going to get a disciplined education. And yet that's what you're talking about in your book, that disciplined thinking is largely yeah. not taught where you're really trying to examine some of what the great thinkers of history have said and examining the evidence in any particular subject. And you're trying to let the evidence guide you in what you ought to embrace. And it's just not that way anymore. But what is it like for 
anybody on the faculty who might disagree with the prevailing progressive thought? Do, do they usually dare speak up, or what happens if they do? Well, they have real problems. I mean, the, the numbers are so small now um, of people who disagree that an awful lot of them just simply hide. I mean, I know on my own campus, I know a few people. Um, it's a sign of the times that I wouldn't give you their names. Right. Because their lives would be made intolerable if I did. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, you no, know, they keep their heads down, and um, that's one of the signs of the, uh, the, the sickness, that there is no open debate on campus. If someone speaks up in favor of, for example, uh, you know, the, the, the current Republican regime, uh, the, the uh, President Trump's uh, administration, they would have a very, very hard time put on campus. I mean, really? there would probably be a riot. Uh, <laughs> there would probably be a demonstration against them. Um, there is no tolerance of other points of view. And, of course, where you have no tolerance, so the, the main thing is, it, forget the question of people being tolerant for, for a moment. You cannot have a discussion if, the, if in fact, one side is effectively shut down. No. So... Opinions, I mean, uh, issues, ideologies can't be examined. They can't be looked at. They can't be, uh, you know, sort of um, examined for their strengths and weaknesses. That's not possible because one side dominates, and that's that. There is going to be no discussion of its strengths and weaknesses because the controlling majority won't let that happen. Dr. Ellis, would you say that it is going too far to say that a lot of what the students are getting on college campuses today is not so much an education as much as it is just propaganda? I'm afraid that's true. You know, it's a horrible thing to say. I mean, of course, there are are classrooms. There's still the occasional professor who's old school. And if the students are clever enough to find them, then they'll get a decent education. Uh, The sciences, um, you know, you probably can still get decent classes in science, for the moment anyway. uh, But the very strong science of the radicals are trying to colonize the the scientists as well. Um, But if you take... The uh, at least two thirds and probably more of classrooms, yeah, propaganda is not too serious a word to employ to describe what's going on. By which you mean simply that uh, the aim of the class is to inculcate a particular belief and not to analyze that belief or not to analyze any other beliefs. That's right. Not to analyze anything. That's right. That's right. And that's not supposed to be what education is. We're going to come back. Dr. John M. Ellis with us. And his book is called The Breakdown of Higher Education. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. 
my four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like pre Born. Help moms choose life with preborn. Your gift of $28 provides an abortion minded mother a potentially life saving ultrasound. $140 could save five babies. You can give now at 855 601 BABY. That's 855 601 2229 or visit preborn.com. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back. It's hard to believe that when you look back in history, the free speech movement began where? At UC Berkeley. And now it's the place where free speech is suppressed. And that's the case across the country at a lot of our institutions of higher learning. Dr. John M. Ellis is with us. The Breakdown of Higher Education is his book. And we're talking about what has gone wrong in higher education. Dr. Ellis, one of the things, I mean, it's such a great book. You go into so many different details that that will be very important for people to read and understand. But when you're talking about how we got here. You trace it through a number of different situations. We think of the Vietnam War era. We think of the rise of, you know, what happened in the 60s. But you also talk about the rise of identity politics and diversity rather than excellence becoming something that is stressed. Can you speak a little bit to the problems that have been, you know, growing over the last several decades that got us to where we are now? Well, the, there's no doubt that there, there, there are two big things that uh, allowed higher education to go wrong. One was the massive expansion after the Second World War. You know, people's lives were interrupted by the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And when soldiers came back from the war, they started families. And so there was what we call the baby bulge, right? The, yes. the, 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 the tremendous amount of new births. 45 to 1945 to 50. And so about 1965, that that baby boom hit college age. And um, the result was that higher education, public higher education had to more than double in size. Now, when you suddenly have a demand for new professors to be hired, and and the demand is actually greater than the number of the existing professors. So you take the, take the number of all the existing professors in the nation, and then you've got to double that overnight almost. 
are very difficult to do uh, to, and keep quality up now. But what was appalling was that at ex that was exactly the moment when the Vietnam War roiled the, the campuses. <laughs> and so there was a great deal of left radicalism promoted by the d discontent among students over the Vietnam War. So at exactly the time that you needed massive numbers of new professors, the people you were going to have to hire from were mainly radical. Mm. It was a horrible, horrible historical accident. Mm. And undoubtedly, that's the main reason why we're in the mess we're in today. But then identity politics continued that um, because once you start to, you know, hire people, not because they're first-rate scholars, but because they fill some identity niche. You know, you need more people of a certain kind, uh, whether, um, you know, ethnic minorities or, or women. Once you start to do hiring by that, you have an eye on something that's not academic excellence, and that automatically weakens what you're doing. Right. But it was actually worse than that because it, because the people who are clamoring for more black professors, more women professors, the people doing the clamoring were actually radicals themselves. <laughs> and they tended to take charge of the hiring. So they hired, so basically it was an excuse to hire more radicals. Yeah, right. And that's what really happened. Uh, and the combined effect of these two things meant that um, oh, by about the year uh, 1990, you already had a very, very strong leftist uh, control of, of the campuses. And people often say, well, you know, uh, the, the left is always at home in the university. It's always that way. But that actually is not true. Hmm. Back in about 1965, you had something like uh, three to two preponderance of left versus right. So, you know, you've always had a, in the past, you always had a healthy debate between the left and the right on, on the campuses. Yes. Uh, but, but in a pretty short time, about a 30-year span, what you had was an overwhelming majority of the left, and not just the left, the radical left. Yes. And the radical left has no conscience. Hmm. You know, I mean, liberals do have a conscience. Uh, they really want to see a, a literate society and a, a humane uh, um, society. Radicals are, are, are people for whom the creation of their leftist utopia is so important that nothing else matters. And so you can abuse any institution you like. I mean, you can use the universities to do things with the universities that will destroy them. But provided you get to the radical utopia, it's all justified. And that's why radicals are so dangerous, and they now run the, the campuses. Well, they do. They do. And you've got all these new generations of students coming up, and a lot of them come from more conservative homes. And then conservative parents like we, uh, we think, you know, in our home, what, where do we send our kids? What do we do? We want to get them into a place where they can actually have this kind of education with disciplined thinking and learn how to, you know, work through particular, um, you know, historical situations and evaluate the way they really were, as opposed to the spin that, you know, Howard Zinn sort of material would 
would put on whatever oh. happened in history. But th- this is a this is a problem though because I, I talk to a lot of parents who say I don't know where to send my kids, and and it is an arm and a leg. But if you don't go to college, how will you ever get a good job? And I do believe in you know educating children anyway, and educating college students is an important part of life. How do we fight back against this? Is is it all lost, or shall we shall we deal with it in a more forthright way? What do you suggest? Well, the first step is for parents across the country to come to the realization that they are not getting the education they're paying for. And that's the first step for people to understand that. I mean, sure, we all want our kids given a higher education, but we've got to grasp the fact that they are not being given that. And they are not coming out after four years, they are not coming out with the skills that they used to have so that there is no point in sending them to college. Hmm. Uh, They get a diploma, but but people are increasingly skeptical about the value of those diplomas. So so I think what needs to be done is uh, across the country, I mean, the, the, the citizenry of this country has to face up to the fact that higher education now is a disaster, and they have to demand that something be done about it. Um, and they themselves have got to um, stop paying for, stop funneling money to support this massive fraud that's going on. Yes, because they, it is a fraud. I mean, in any walk of life where you give money for one purpose, and the person you're giving it to takes it and uses it for something completely different, that's called embezzling. Yeah, you know? yes, that's what's happening. <laughs> right. That's what's happening. That's true. And parents, I think parents are the ones who've got to wake up to the fact that this is nonsense. They're spending enormous amounts of money, and their kids are spending, you know, several years of their lives for nothing. They're not getting what they're paying for. Well, once, once the I'm I'm a firm believer in the fact that once the universities see their funding threatened. Once they see their jobs threatened um, by the realization from from parents that this is not working, there is some chance of reform. But 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 for people to keep feeding this beast, keep funneling money into the same same pursuits, as if it was the same kind of education that we got 50 years ago. Uh, if they keep doing that, they're what they're doing is um, they're enabling the present academic establishment to keep doing what it's doing, which is not what we want. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, and the problem is, I know from a journalism background, what happens is not a lot of conservatives go into journalism. And it seems that in academia, the same problem is there that people who might be more conservative or might, you know, even classically liberal and committed to the principles of disciplined thinking may look at academia and say, I don't want to enter that cesspool. I mean, isn't that part of the problem, too, that people who might be better at being you know, in the scholarship area and in the teaching arena, hesitate to go into higher education circles because exactly of what you've been talking about with the radical leftism, they don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Well, I know several people who who take one look at what's going on and decide they don't want a career in higher education. Uh, you know, I had a friend uh, a few years back who uh, was settling into an academic career. This was about 20 years ago and notice what was going on around him and abruptly changed course and went into business. And he was potentially a brilliant academic. He just couldn't see a future for himself 
on a college campus dominated by political radicals. Yeah, you can't And it probably, it. from his point of view, that was smart. But what it means is that the, the process of the radicals taking over is uh, assisted by the choices being made by more conservative people who, who look at this and are revolted by it and don't want any part of it. You're right about that. Well, it is a great book. It's called The Breakdown of Higher Education by Dr. John M. Ellis, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of German Literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Loved your book, Dr. Ellis, and it was so kind of you to be with us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me and for your kind words about my book. Oh, you're very welcome. It's really a great resource, and thanks again for being here. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today, and we will see you next time. God bless. God bless.